Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Now that's a very interesting story. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Hello and welcome to episode 23 in our series exploring the history of the management rights company Main Man, which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing Main Man artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagance and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. I suppose the first one was the Ziggy Tour, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders <laughs> for Mars. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop and David Bowie. This is the most expensive tour I've ever done in my life. <laughs> In this episode, the founder of Main Man, entrepreneur and empresario Tony DeFries, tells the story behind a business and personal relationship that brought together a musical virtuoso from Hull in England and a small town boy from Indiana in America. When they met, Mick Ronson was David Bowie's invaluable guitar god and John Mellencamp was a struggling singer-songwriter determined to become a rock star. As main man artists, the pair worked together for several years and in 1981 produced one of the biggest songs of the 80s, Jack and Diane, from what would become John's multi-platinum selling album, American Fool. Here's Tony explaining how these two main man artists began their very successful working relationship. In 1974, I was working on Diamond Dogs with Bowie. We were very engaged in getting that stage show together and putting it on across the United States. In doing that, we encountered substantial cast of characters, and one of those was Michael Kamen, who we found in New York after putting out a call for a musical director. By this time, Davy's on-stage entourage had grown from three or four musicians the Spiders plus a keyboard player, for example, to a much larger group of people, backup singers, dancers, more instruments, more players, more musicians. And so we really needed a musical director. And we had been using Mike Garson as a piano player, but he wasn't fulfilling the role of a musical director. Michael Kamen, who had studied at Juilliard, who had created his own New York classical rock fusion band, one of the probably first of that type of band, and made various recordings with CBS, um, Columbia, had different people in that band, um, and some of them were people who we later came to use in our own endeavours. I had spent some time of that year also resolving a settlement with David so that we could carry on working with his new material. 
and his old material. And, of course, we made an album called Young Americans. And Young Americans contained a very successful series of songs, but the outstanding song was fame. And fame was ultimately the thing that really broke David in America and became a very successful record worldwide. And of course, was done with John Lennon. And John Lennon and Carlos Alomar and David were the creators of both the song and the recording. And so that deserves a little explanation. That same year in 1974, Main Man put on a stage play on Broadway, not a musical, but rather a play. And the play itself was called Fame. And Main Man put up some substantial advertising and billboards. And Fame was about Marilyn Monroe and all her various influencers and husbands and boyfriends and girlfriends. And it was a story of what happens when you go from obscurity to fame, what impact it has, and how the different characters in that play play out. And of course, it didn't play out well for Marilyn, but it certainly had an enormous impact. Now, our play didn't fare very well. It closed after a limited run. But at the same time, it's worth noting that the play was written by Tony Ingrassia. And Tony Ingrassia was one of our signed artist performers and had a significant off-Broadway presence as a playwright in New York. Had also been involved in Pork, which was one of the factors that brought him to the attention of Main Man, brought various other Main Man personnel. For example, Jamie Andrews and Anthony Zanetta were the producers of this play. So Z and Jamie produced this play on Broadway, whilst at the same time they were attending to rehearsal setups for Diamond Dogs. We also got, as we did pretty much every year of Main Man, tapes audition tapes from various acts that were looking for an opportunity to get signed for management, recording, songwriting, whatever. And we listened to a lot of them and we sometimes followed up on some of them. One of the ones we followed up on was from a kid in Indiana called John Mellencamp. Young at the time, he sent us tapes that were interesting. He sent us pictures that were dreadful. Main man, someone at Main Man reached out to him and said, Can you send us just some regular, uh, ordinary, casual pictures? He'd sent us modeling type pictures that he'd done for some local, and he was all wrapped up in trench coats and suits and totally unrelated to his music, but simply photos that he probably thought would get attention. And they didn't get our attention. We weren't looking for a model, we were looking for a singer. And what I heard in Mellencamp was, here's a singer, here's somebody who has the vocal ability to persuade you, albeit his songs may not be the best, but his delivery and his performance of the vocal part of the song is really interesting. And I'd like to hear more. I'd also like to see 
physically what he's like. So I asked the office to arrange to bring him to New York and then ferry him out to Connecticut, where I was living at the time. And I auditioned him. And of course, initially, he was um, not enthusiastic about any of this, but he was fairly desperate. He was trapped in a little tiny town called Seymour in Indiana, where his parents and his family still lived, where he'd got his uh, high school sweetheart, who was actually his teacher, pregnant. And they'd had a baby, and he'd had to marry her, and get tossed out of school and she lost her job and he wasn't having a very happy time but he had a band and the band were willing to keep on working with him except that they all needed to make money and have jobs so they were at that place where bands often are desperate to stay together and be the band and at the same time all manner of conflicting problems where they needed, for whatever reason, to have a job, to keep a job. They needed to maybe support a girlfriend or a wife. And they wanted to stay in the band. And juggling these things gets very difficult and why a lot of bands break up. In Mellencamp's case, his band weren't as good as he was. So that he's writing songs, he's got a certain set of skills... But what he really needs is people who can supplement all of that, who can add to it. And in the same way that I always pushed David to get the best musicians and I provided him with the best musicians and I didn't hesitate to spend money on musicians if they weren't the band, if they weren't his friends from London or if they weren't the band from Hull. But ultimately, there was always this process that had to be done of weeding out the ones that couldn't make the grade and introducing ones that could make the grade. And performers, the Bowies and the Mellencamps of the world, aren't very good at doing this because, A, they don't really know what they want or what they need. And B, they generally don't have enough information or enough skill to know that making the record or doing the performance in a way that is close as perfect as possible is something that you need expert help with. And there's no shame in getting experts to help you. The whole point of having talent is to get other people to help you make that talent work. And that's true whether you're a writer or a singer or a recording artist. Producers need engineers desperately. A producer without a good engineer is largely in limbo. They're lost. They don't know what they're doing. Somebody who knows how to get a drum sound in a studio, this is back then when we had to do everything in, audio studios is invaluable but the producer may be the person that the artist needs to relate to his work so Visconti for example for Bowie was a tremendous asset because what Tony understood was how to make the engineering qualities of a sound recording how to use all the different aspects of increasing 
audio, decreasing audio, gating uh, different instruments, pitching instruments, placing instruments, even how to get the best sound out of a cubicle in a studio by arranging it in the right way. And so we went off when Jamie and I went off to Bloomington, Indiana to see John recording initially. We saw that he was working in a converted house, which was a studio, that had a fireplace. And they'd left the fireplace open with the ability to close it, but they'd left it so you could open and close the fireplace and use it as an echo chamber. They mic'd the fireplace. That was a clever idea because basically you had a long fireplace, a long flue that would give you an enormous um, capability to get a natural echo. And then by miking it, you could bring it to the board, record it, and then you could do whatever you wanted with it. You could distort it or you could stretch it. I have been learning all this stuff for a very long time. I never wanted to be a sound engineer, but hanging out with people like Mickey Most and Jeff Stevens and other producers, hanging out with Visconti, actually taught me a lot about how to make a record sound the way you want it to. And it became really important. And ultimately, that all eventually turned into digital audio. But as long as you were doing audio in real environments, in a real non-digital environment, you had to be able to do those things. Now, Ronson was very gifted and naturally gifted at figuring out how to make the mechanics, if you like, but more likely really the dynamics of instruments, whether it was a guitar or a violin or a keyboard or a choir or an orchestra, how to make that instrument work in a studio environment by placing mics in a certain fashion, how to make drum sounds that would support and carry the song. And it's that sort of skill that he brought to David and to all the early Bowie recordings. It's that sort of skill that he brought to Mellencamp. And his first work with John was when we started recording John in 1976. So, you know, we've signed him up and we've got him on board and we've got the band organized and we've decided that the best way for us to move forward is to start recording him in a New York studio. I think we ended up at the Hip Factory or the Record Plant or maybe both. But certainly those were the kind of studios we would have gone into in that era. And that's where Mick and John first got together in terms of making our very first record with Mellencamp, which was Chestnut Street incident and that's all to do with a song that he wrote there are two versions of it there's chestnut street which is a sort of acoustic style version and then there's chestnut street revisited which is a more say more of a rock and roll version and both of those are on that album and ultimately very important songs for john I always wanted to do a parade, so I took put my chance in Seymour, Indiana, to do a full-scale parade with limousines, which we had to import from Bloomington because there weren't any there. 
with the high school marching band, which we use John's high school marching band to his enormous embarrassment. And we made lovely T-shirts that said Cougar on one side and Johnny on the other. So Johnny Cougar, whichever way you looked, you saw Johnny Cougar. We made little ones for children. And even one for my um, baby daughter, Fleur, who we'd taken to Indiana with us to get this whole thing started. This is how you get a party started. You find the postmaster of the town and you ask him if he can make some special envelopes and mail items for Johnny Cougar Day. And then you ask who can help us organise a parade, who will give us a licence for a parade. Well, it turns out the mayor of Seymour, Indiana, population 15,000 and something, is also the um, postmaster. So he says, well, I can give you a license, uh, but of course there'll have to be some payments in place and other things, and we discussed all of that, and we we turned out that he's also the um, person who arranges for the collection of um, payments. So he's got four or five different titles, and ultimately, over a pleasant afternoon, he and I worked out how we could put on a Johnny Cougar Day parade, have a Johnny Cougar Day celebration, have a marching band, and have a all-invited concert at the Armoury. And he was able to dish out all those appropriate licenses. Much easier than doing a parade in a big city where you probably have to go to a dozen different departments. <laughs> Everyone was very impressed that we'd managed to pull off this parade in Seymour. Um, John was, in most cases, he was embarrassed by the attention. And it's very peculiar because if you want to be famous, you're going to have to acknowledge attention. Whether you like it or not isn't really important. And he hadn't got there yet. He got there later, but the beginning, he was very like, why can't I just go on and, you know, have a career as a singer with a band? And the answer is because nobody cares. There are loads of those. Everybody uh, everybody can be a singer with a band. It doesn't get you too far. So here we are in Indiana. But after that event, we get obviously get some people down from New York and other places. They're very um, These people are generally press, and they're very surprised to discover there's another America that they don't know about because they don't generally venture into <laughs> the... Uh, these difficult parts of America, which are internal Indiana, is very, very much a different place if you come from the East Coast or the West Coast. Not like being in New York or LA. It's uh, real America, very real America. It's where John came from. It's what he was all about. In that sense, he was a, a real American boy. And you can hear that and see that later on and eventually well, it takes a, a long time but eventually after three or four years of working through the exercise he comes up with American Fall he comes up with Jack and Diane he comes up with a hand to hold on to he comes up with Little Pink Houses he comes up with a lot of songs that are absolutely spot on about America and he ends up working with Willie Nelson and getting admitted into the Hall of Fame. Before all of that happens, 
He comes to New York. He's never made an album. He's never been in a real, strictly speaking, a high-end recording studio before. He's very nervous. But we bring on board Michael Kamen, who's on keyboards on this very first Main Man album, the very first Melon Camp album, or Cougar album as we called it. And this is Chestnut Street. David Mansfield is playing steel guitar, mandolin and violins. David Mansfield is a young guy, probably younger than John, actually. Yes, he is. He's about five or six years younger than John. He's younger than David. He's younger than me, younger than Michael Kamen. But he is Michael Kamen's, to some degree, protege. At some point, he was part of Michael's band, and he's got involved, as Michael later did, in writing song scores and film scores. And he goes on to do some very interesting films, as does Michael. But that, that's another story. What's interesting here is, on this Chestnut Street album, you've got Mick Ronson, Michael Kamen, and David Mansfield. These are all musicians that are way more experienced, way more advanced, way more technically competent than the people that John is generally used to working to and more capable, if you like, but certainly more able than his band and the people that he's previously used to do production work in Bloomington. So we get a very different feel and taste of his music on this album. It comes out as having a lot more depth and a lot more significance, even though it's a very early piece of work. It's still, if we listen to it today, and we listen especially to this one song, and there are some very nice songs on here, but there's one song in particular where John talks about, sings about, being a small-town boy who's trapped in a place he doesn't want to be, and he creates that song with a very impressive set of lyrics around Chestnut Street. And if you've travelled in America and you've been to a lot of small towns, which I have, because when you go on concert tours with acts that are yet to be famous, you end up in a lot of small places with a lot of audiences. And what you discover is that in addition to having multiple towns with the same name, America has multiple towns that have multiple streets with the same name. And so there are hundreds of chestnut streets in America. So it's a very common theme that people understand and relate to. And this is what I really saw in John from the beginning, that he had this ability to take something simple and easy to grasp and turn it into a very strong song about what it's like to be stuck where you have, as he describes it, ambitions. He says he's got a master plan, but a master plan that he can't do anything except think about and get frustrated about because he's not in a position to make it happen. Although it was useful to do this parade this opening date, this armory show that we rehearsed and performed with the band in Seymour. It wasn't going to provide any real promotion for the recording that we'd just released. It wasn't going to provide any real 
experience with John and his band, who'd been doing this kind of one-off performance for quite a long time, but with no ability to get into a larger audience space to reach out to more radio, and without the support, frankly, of a major record company, they wouldn't get very much attention or very much play from radio, from television, and they wouldn't get it nationally until they had a successful, at least top 50 or top 20 hit. So all these things were out of reach right now. What was possible was to get some local state attention. And Indiana's a big state. A lot of it's flat. One place actually in particular that goes by the old Native American name of Terre Haute, which flat earth, literally flat earth. And that's the place that we, or one of the places that we decided we'd go and do a show. And along with the show, we'd do some radio and television. There was a local television station in Terre Haute called Omelette, a breakfast show, obviously, hence the Omelette label. And it was a very friendly show and very interested in putting on local or even national acts that were coming through. The connection to Bowie via, of course, Main Man was clearly a big help in getting onto these kind of shows. Gave them a touch of glamour and a touch of excitement and a big town feel. So this was one of the reasons we were able to get John on shows like that. And that particular show um, is still quite interesting to revisit. Remember, we're talking about 19... 76. It goes down very nicely. John's evidently nervous. He does it as a solo performance without the band and he does a little interview and he talks about me and Main Man. What's important about it is that he delivers a very good acoustic version, a little extra orchestration. There's some other instruments on there. And he sings and presents the song, which is Chestnut Street, very nicely. And it still stands up, even now, stands up very well. Now, that was the high side or the high point of that kind of touring. We had to import high school kids from different towns to different dates or from the local town to the local date. And we did that, of course, by using our... Johnny Cougar, Cougar Johnny t-shirts. And we also produced, um, obviously, there were available records to give out. And all of that gave it a feeling, along with the fact that we had brought to this road tour New York instrument rental companies, New York sound companies. So we had high-end sound companies and high-end equipment companies providing all that we needed to put on good shows, high-end shows, good quality shows. And all of this was good for John. It was good for the band. We didn't get enormous audiences, but by bussing audiences in, we were able to fill up more seats than we would have otherwise. You can't make any money this way, but you can get some recognition and you can begin to build a fan base. And that's really what we were doing. But most importantly, you can get a lot of experience for your writer, your performer. In John's case, there were other writers 
in the band. He wrote with David Parman, for instance, who was his bass player. He wrote with a friend from Seymour, George Green. He had the band singing backup, so people like Larry Crane particularly, who was guitar lead. All of this gave them more experience, gave him more experience, and contributed to creating an individual sound, which later on got to be called Heartland Rock. But actually at that point in time didn't really have a name because we were making a new kind of sound. It was sort of country and it was sort of rock and it was sort of rock and roll. So it wasn't really any specific sound. And this led to ups and downs, obviously. We had all the difficulties you normally have with venues and with sound folk. Now this left John and Jamie, because I wasn't always there, obviously, on the road in Indiana, largely um, because Jamie Andrews was in charge um, with them ending up spending time together, sharing motel rooms together. You're talking here about working through towns that you don't end up staying in, classy big hotels or holiday inns or any of those places. You end up in the Howard Johnson or the motel. And that puts you in quite close proximity with whoever you're <laughs> rooming with, as it were. And you always end up with shared rooms because it's a cost factor that you don't want to have... 10 rooms when you can have five. And so you, you end up with making it work. This led to some interesting things happening. And one of them was that Jamie was having a lot of difficulties with his partner or partners in New York because he wasn't there because he was on the road. And when you're on the road and you can't bring your partners with you, they tend to get a little tetchy and this is what was happening. And so... Every time Jamie got to stop somewhere, he'd get a call and the call would be from either one or other of his New York partners, boyfriends, that is. Jamie, of course, was gay, a good-looking guy with a good physique who was very comfortable around people and didn't give away the gay thing if it was in the wrong circumstance or the wrong situation. Indiana wasn't exactly, especially in the 70s, was not necessarily the friendliest place to be a gay man. So he often had to be, on the face of it, just a regular guy. But when he wasn't a regular guy, he would come up with a complaint. And this was the complaint that he made quite often. I need a lover who won't drive me crazy. This was expressed to John frequently, one motel after another, one phone call after <laughs> And John actually turned it into a song. And he recorded the song post our MCA venture later on. But when he did record it, it was a hit. First of all, it was a hit in a place where you wouldn't expect it to be a hit, but in Australia because I think he was touring there at the time. And then Pat Benatar, who was a relatively new signing on Chrysalis, heard it, and she really liked the song, so she did a version of it. Her version was a big hit, and actually gave John his first writing credit and his first recognition for writing a song that somebody else had covered and made a hit. And this can be a very big challenge but it can also be an enormous uh, 
benefit for an artist who's also a songwriter, and we had done something similar with Bowie by taking his Pretty Things song and recording it with Mickey Mouse producing for Peter Noon, who was the lead singer of Herman's Hermits. And that worked very well for Pete, but it also worked for David because it gave David a certain status. It was effectively his second hit before it was a hit for him, was a hit for Peter. His first hit had been Space Oddity, and he hadn't really come up with anything between Space Oddity and Pretty Things that connected with the listening audience, with the radio audience. And the radio audience was really important in the 60s and 70s. You couldn't do without it. There was no MTV at that point. There were very few television opportunities in America or England. More in America, but still, not many. Hard to find and reaching out to an audience that wasn't really focused on music. So until you had real music programs, mainly really came in the 80s, you couldn't make videos a way to move a record. It had to be radio play. So covers were really valuable if the cover was by an, an audience figure or a singer that had a different audience than you. Pat Benatar was clearly in a different place than... Mellencamp, but on the same token, she had a large popular audience of young people who followed her songs. So that was quite a nice event. And all of that really goes down to Jamie's unhappy uh, romantic life on the tour. <laughs> or on that, that was basically his job at the time, so he wasn't thrilled. But the other things we did for John on the Indiana outing, were to find some stunts. And one of them was a really nice stunt, although it made everyone a bit nervous at the time and um, got a lot of negative plus positive comment. I thought it would be nice to get some, at least a cougar, and we actually ended up with two. And this means a live wild mountain lion, which is what a cougar really is. Um, they are essentially American cats. And the reason I actually named Mellencamp Cougar was, A, I thought Mellencamp was going to be a bit hard to sell. And B, he moved like a cat. He had a very um, fluid sort of movement. And it gave him a sort of stroll like a cat. And so looking for names that would fit him and fit America, Cougar for me, was a natural. He originally was quite happy with it. Later on, he decided that he wanted to be known for himself as Mellencamp, and he didn't want the whole idea of having a Bowie tag or some other kind of name tag. He didn't feel it was honest. He ought to be the real me, the real person. Lots of artists have decided that. Lots of other artists, like Dylan, have decided to just go with a name they like because it represents something they like. In his case, Dylan Thomas, the poet. But it's all a very personal choice. The problem for John was, of course, that he was John Cougar, or Johnny Cougar. And for him to escape the Cougar tag and get the Mellencamp tag to stick took quite a long time. 
took four or five albums, actually. Tony DeFries explaining how Mick Ronson and John Mellencamp came to both be main man artists in the 70s and worked together on John's early albums. In the next episode, Tony explains how Rono and John teamed up again in the early 80s to produce one of the decade's most enduring rock anthems, Jack and Diane, from John's hugely successful album, American Fool. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period in rock history that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we are adding to the main man website each week. A really fascinating record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's all at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the main man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech Production. Thanks for listening. <laughs>